2: i'm steven Metcalf, and this is the slate culture gab fest emma stone's horny frankenstein movie edition it's wednesday december 13th 2023 on today's show poor things it's the latest from director yorgos lanthimos it's a reverse gender frankenstein sort of that's Overly simplistic, but will complicated. Trust me. It stars Emma Stone, and for that segment, we're going to be joined by Slate's own Sam Adams to discuss. And then, television pioneer and absolute American icon Norman Lear died this past week at the age of 101. He's the creator, of course, of sitcoms like All in the Family, Jefferson's Maud. But that's only the tip of that iceberg. Uh, He really remade TV, so it could be topical and morally serious. And finally, Slate's own wonderful Laura Miller will join us to discuss her 10 best books of the year. But, of course, joining me first is uh, Julia Turner from the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And, of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right. Before we start, though, I should say, Julia, will be sitting out our first segment. We'll be joined instead by Slate's own Sam Adams. Uh, Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Let's make a show, shall we? Let's go. All right. Well, Yorgos Lanthimos is the Greek film director best known for The Lobster and The Favorite. His new one is uh, Poor Things. It stars Emma Stone as Bella, a monster somewhat somewhat in the Frankenstein mode. We'll get to it. She was a pregnant woman who committed suicide and has been now brought back to life by a brilliant scientist, played by Willem Dafoe. But with her own fetus's brain now installed in her body, she must thereby relearn human behavior, the very basics of physical embodiment from scratch. The movie is dark, Semi surreal satire. It follows her as she discovers the vagaries of the world. It also stars Mark Ruffalo and Rami Youssef. In the clip, you're going to hear the voices of Stone as Bella Baxter and Ruffalo as Bella's lover, Duncan Wedderburn. They're vacationing together in Lisbon, but Bella starts to think Duncan is holding her back. And just a quick note when she refers to God, she's actually referring to The willem defoe character the scientist who brought her back to life whose name is godwin she calls him god let's listen
3: understand me never lived outside god's house what so bella so much to discover and your sad face makes me discover angry feelings for you right become the very thing i hate grasping succubus of a lover many
2: of them off me now i'm it fuck oh dana you grasping succubus of a lover (laughs) Um, (laughs) but for now i will refer to you as slate's esteemed film critic uh this is quite the visual and linguistic feast what a wild movie what did you think
4: yeah, very juicy that we get to talk about this movie, because I have many contradictory feelings about it. And even though I quite enjoyed it, which I'll, I'll get into, uh, when I was reading over some of the negative reviews of the movie, I basically agreed with every critique in them. <laughs> I just feel like most of the movie, at least you know the the, the first three quarters of it, were, were able to win me over anyway. And I was a bit surprised by that, because I have not been a big fan of Yorgos Lanthimos in the past. I would say that his movies, in general, seem to me somewhat uh, show-offy. And that they're full of interesting ideas, but that they're sort of pointlessly over-stylized in their direction. He's in love with the fisheye lens in several of his movies, including this one. He just randomly puts frames in fisheye for reasons that don't seem to make any narrative sense to me. There's a lot about him in the past that I found a, a little bit preening as a director, but... This movie, for one thing, it looks absolutely fantastic. I really recommend people see it on the big screen if they possibly can, because it is lusciously production designed. The costumes are incredible. And the the look is also, as was the case with The, the Favourite, actually, which was hyper-stylized in a different way. The look is a part of the message. You know, the kind of modernness of the movie comes in, in the way that, it's, it, that it looks in some ways. But the big reason to see it is Emma Stone's performance, which is just outstanding, technically unbelievable because she's you know literally creating a a character from infancy into adulthood right before our eyes inside the same body um But also just very funny, very charming. I think better than the the writing that she's speaking from in some ways. Like the dialogue in some ways I think punches its points home too clearly. There could actually be much less dialogue in this movie and it might be smarter. But Emma Stone is just so brilliant, funny, adorable, sexy in this role that, um, that I think it's worth seeing just for her.
2: Sam,
0: you're up. Yeah, so this is a movie I did uh, kind of an about face on between the first and the second time I saw it, which is somewhat unusual for me. I, that preening quality that Data mentioned was definitely at the forefront the first time I watched it. I sort of it felt like kind of when you meet a person at a party or something, and they're really determined like to convince you like how weird and eccentric they are right off the bat. Um, and I just felt like okay, I get it. Like you're weird and kooky and nutty and what a you know, um, and then I watched the movie again, knowing that it was a comedy and having in some ways sort of lowered my expectations, um, and it met those resoundingly. I think it's very funny. Um, you hear that in the clip that uh, your sad face makes me discover angry feelings for you. There's loads of, of lines like that that um, maybe sort of laugh out loud. I think the the sort of thematic, you know, subtext of it, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about is extremely thin and in some ways doesn't bear that much scrutiny, but it is incredibly enjoyable. Uh, It's, as Dana mentioned, such a treat to look at. Um, Emma Stone's performance and Mark Ruffalo's as well um, is, I think, just fantastic. Um, it, it I think Mark uh, Ruffalo's guess,
4: is kind of, kind of slovenly, actually, but it's very fun to watch. <laughs> yeah.
0: His accent,
4: uh, his English accent is just an absolute <laughs> disaster.
0: I, I kind of I kind of love that about it, but um, yeah, I guess we will see exactly how much discussion it bears. Um, I've sort of avoided thinking about it too much because I just want to enjoy it uh, superficially, so I think there's a lot of that level of pleasure on it, which is I guess appropriate for a movie that is about self-gratification and
2: maybe not too much for the uh, higher brain functions. Mm, it's funny because all of the intelligence of the movie is, in a weird way, is surface intelligence, right? It's like it's pyrotechnically visual and, and verbal. And yet, as soon as you press on it, and try to get at its emotional or thematic truths, I agree, it tends to vaporize a little bit. Um, That said, I I think all of the performances are tremendous. I think uh, Emma Stone is a tour de force. I think she's terrific. It gives her all kinds of comic possibilities. Physically, she clearly has a background as a dancer. She's a wonderful physical mover. There's an actual dance number with Ruffalo. That's f- a showstopper. It's just absolutely fabulous. Um, she, she, her, it, it's sort of like all the acting chops are right there. Um, and she doesn't overplay it, and it's very funny. And the faux naïve, like, explain to me your um, patriarchal ways, is to a marvelous effect. I think Ruffalo is good because he is slovenly. It's a very broad performance. Uh, I did find I was laughing, <laughs> and laughter was good um, to carry me through. Uh, I think Defoe as the god figure, which is just, you know, overplayed, and we've seen it from Frankenstein all the way up to Blade Runner. like, But Defoe's actually quite good. He's got this sort of jigsaw puzzle face filled with scars, and it's just mask-like, and it builds upon his own wonderfully distinctive physiognomy, and his voice acting is just marvelous in this film. And there's a degree of paternal and filial tenderness that I think is very well played by both uh, actors. Um, we will get to this, it sounds like, in the plus segment. Um, the the three-act structure of it, roughly, is uh, fetching And very intriguing setup with uh, Rami Youssef being the wonderful good guy in the film. Uh, And the middle third is the slovenly picaresque. And the final third I, I rate as a disaster. And it's at that moment where the themes are sort of rising to the surface rather belatedly and rather rapidly. I mean, they've been there all along. They're not hard to discern, but exceedingly clumsily. And it's at that moment, Dana, one, checks one's Wikipedia page to discover... Based on a novel by a man, directed by a man, screenplay by a man, this feminist parable, and I would would have been surprised if it were otherwise, and that is a real indictment of the film.
4: Yeah, we're going to save the spoilers for our plus segment, but I completely agree that it falls apart at the end. I say as much in my review, and that ends up leaving you with a kind of unsettled, unsatisfied feeling, even if you did enjoy what came before But I will say that this made me want to read the novel it's based on, which I think probably treats these ideas, ideas about feminism and consent and sexuality and liberation with probably more nuance than than Yorgos Lanthimos's adaptation does. The ending, though, and by ending, I mean kind of the last act of the movie. I, I, I don't know whether to say it's 20 minutes, 10 minutes. I don't know how long it is, but you're all going to know what I mean. It's when Christopher Abbott's character enters the movie. It starts to feel to me like, oh, this was adapted from a novel, and they're trying to bring in... This you know important character who, who, in fact, changes everything about the entire story, but he's being brought in too late and being given too little to do for him actually to be anything more than a kind of thematic punching bag. And yeah, I mean, it's this is why I think I agree with you, Sam, that as, in, as much as I might enjoy this movie, it's not important. I would never put it on a top 10 list. I would never consider it sort of a major film of the year because both of this weak ending and just because the style and the look and the acting surpass the actual writing and ideas
0: of the movie. I mean, we should, I, we should talk a little more, I think about just the look of this movie. Um, it's already sort of winning awards for production design and cinematography. And it is just staggering to look at. They shot uh, the portion of the movie that is on color, which is about two thirds of it. As you mentioned in your review, Dana it kind of pops from black and white into color um, as soon as Bella starts having orgasms. Um, and they shot it on this, uh, sort of bespoke, specifically made for this production Kodak uh, reversal film stock, which just gives it these incredibly vibrant um, contrasty colors. It, it looks like somebody basically had like an old TV set and you were in there like messing with the color knobs and you turned like the hue all the way to the right or something. It is that kind of uh, level of, of saturation. In it. So it is really kind of astonishing to, to look at. It has this kind of wonderfully unnatural quality to it, which I really enjoy. Um, it is I think something that's gonna play really well for the movie that kind of goes into awards season because having it I've seen it you know twice in a theater and again on my television set and it looks fantastic you know streaming onto a TV it's the kind of thing they would have used in like Best Buy to sell the latest set. Um, so I think it has a you know real like um, a great look to it. The production design is really kind of inventive and wacky. If you watch it very closely, you can see there's all sorts of uh, genital symbolism in the way that certain you know, rectangular doors and their you know semicircular windows above them are shaped. Um so they're they're just having a tremendous amount of fun with that. and I think that's really um, infectious once you if you get on its wavelength.
4: Yeah, the costumes as well, which are by a designer named Holly Waddington. There are just these costumes that I want there to be an entire couture line inspired by Bella Baxter. Just the the, the combination of modern and Victorian in the shapes and the colors, and it's just a place where there's there's the fantasia and freedom being let mm-hmm. loose in the in the same right. way that it is in Emma Stone's performance.
2: Yeah, and the Dana, there's something both abstracted, super stylized and yet very busy and very specific about the movie's sense of place. It goes from city to city to city, uh, Alexandria, Lisbon, London, uh, Paris is the long set piece in the middle in Paris. And it's both uh, clearly a Victorian-ish, I think, universe, uh, pegged to our common memory of what such places look like. Um, And yet it has this almost like Italo Calvino, it's taking place nowhere or in, in some bizarre confection of the real and the unreal that's um quite captivating. I haven't seen I'm I'm somewhat ashamed to admit his other movies. Maybe talk a little bit about his aesthetic and ethic as a filmmaker.
4: Well, I'm surprised you haven't seen the favorite because I'm sure we must have talked about it on the on the Culture Gab Fest, given that it was an Oscar candidate and a popular movie that year, and Olivia Colman won an Oscar for it. But maybe you were just out the week that we talked about it. But yeah, maybe Sam has seen more uh, Yorgos Lanthimos movies than I have. I have to admit that I don't often see them unless I know I'm going to write about them because of that exact sort of smug quality that we mentioned, which I think all of his movies have had to some extent. Uh, all of them have been ideas movies his ideas tend to be similar, and I get into this in my review as well. He's really interested in entrapment in these kind of claustrophobic situations that explore human degradation. Uh, he has a mean sense of humor, and uh, and if that's something that turns you off, you probably won't like any of his movies, although I think this is one of the the least mean that he's made so far. Uh, I don't know, Sam, do you have a strong Lanthimos feeling?
0: I do. I mean, I, I want to say that this, I, I just was... I really just want to get this phrase on the record because as Steve was describing it, I think you could do worse than thinking of this movie as sort of like a horny steampunk Frankenstein. Um, that sort of yeah, the aesthetic of Yeah, that's an summation. That's, that's yes. it basically what it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, please quote me in the ads. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, he, he loves um, this idea. His very uh, first his breakthrough movie, Dogtooth, which was nominated for uh, an Oscar is, is sort of about um, an isolated family that has been teaching their children sort of this you know very particular made up language for certain things and he really likes the idea of Constructed identity of kind of starting from zero, um, wiping away social contagion, and and the inevitably failed attempt to kind of build your own society outside of that. And the style has gotten much more rococo as he's been able to work with American budgets in in the favorite and this movie, and also moved into making period films, which is always an excuse to let uh, your you know your crafts team go nuts, um, which they have done with abandon. Um, and I, you know, I enjoy that a lot, but I I confess that this movie does not sort of move me on any deeper level other than just enjoyment.
2: Okay. We will get to that and more in the plus segment. Fact check. I saw the favorite, talked about it on the show and remember loving it. Okay. This one is called poor things. It's in theaters now. Uh, check it out. And if you have, uh, shoot us an email. Very curious what listeners think. Let's move on. Ah right now is the moment in our podcast we discuss business. Dana, what do you have?
4: Steve, we have two items of business this week. First of all, today, December 13th, is you, the listener's last day, to send questions for our annual listener call-in episode. This is a tradition we have every year where we compile questions that people put on a voicemail and then we answer them on our holiday show. We're going to be recording that next week and we need some time to go through your questions. So if you have something you've been dying to ask us all these years, not necessarily about culture, just about life in general, you can call us and leave a message at 260 337 That's 260 Fest two sixty. Or you can email us as always at culturefest at slate dot com. We will compile all those questions this week and pick a few to answer on next week's show. So please get your questions in by the thirteenth. And be sure to tune in for the listener call in episode next Wednesday. Okay, our second item of business this week is just to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. We're taking advantage of the Slate Plus spoiler possibility. We sometimes talk about a movie in the main show something that we want to get into the spoilery details without ruining it for listeners of the main show. But why do you subscribe to Slate Plus if not to figure out the real dirt about how we feel about the twists in a movie or a show? So this week, we're going to take Poor Things, the Yorgos Lanthimos movie that we're talking about in our main show, and talk about the ending, which has a few twists, a lot of things that can be debated. I think it's really rich for spoiling. And that's what we'll be doing in this week's Slate Plus segment. If you're a member already, you'll hear that at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Why become a member? Well, because you get ad free podcasts, you get bonus content like the spoiler segment I just described, and you get unlimited access to all of the writing and podcasting on slate.com. These memberships are really what keeps Slate afloat. So please, if you love our show, sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right. Showtime.
2: All right. Well, Norman Lear died this past week. He was 101 years old. Uh, sign of a clean conscience, maybe? I don't know. He, of course, was the driving force behind revolution in American television. He was the creator of such sitcoms as One Day at a Time, the original one, The Jeffersons, Maude, and of course, All in the Family, which is regarded as one of the greatest TV shows of all time. He was, I th- I think, I'm pretty sure he was the first showrunner, though we didn't call it that then, to achieve widespread name recognition. His signature was character-driven comedy built around very topical subjects. Uh, These included, this is back in the 1970s, huge hit TV shows addressed head-on issues of race, class, gender, gay rights, abortion. I mean, incredible, right? Uh, As Times TV critic put it, these were kind of public group therapy sessions Dealing with the aftermath of the 60s, he described himself as an out-and-out liberal, no apologies in any direction, Here, here. Okay, I think we have to listen to a clip from I Think His Greatest Achievement, the TV show All in the Family, where husband and wife Archie and Edith go grocery shopping. Archie, of course, is played by Carol O'Connor, Edith by Gene Stapleton. Let's listen. (laughs)
3: Look at the price on this here, bread, 50 cents. Take it back and buy the 11-cent bread we always eat.
5: Gee, bread ain't been 11 cents for years Not since you went in the service That was 1942 Oh,
3: geez, 1942 I want to tell you, them was the days, Edith. Them was the days, boy Everybody in the country was working Plenty of money in everybody's pocket 11-cent bread That's because we had a beautiful war going it was then <laughs> Look at everything nowadays, huh? Boy, millions of people out of work, no money in their pockets like me. We're selling all our wheat. The Ruskies got the 11-cent bread. We get the 50-cent bread. <laughs> I want to tell you, this country's in trouble every time there's an outbreak of peace.
2: All right, well, Julia, first of all, welcome back to the show. Thank you. What was your relationship to Norman Lear?
1: I think this might be a segment where our microgenerational differences actually make a big difference because I watched a ton of syndicated sitcom reruns In the 80s growing up But the only show That regularly appeared Was The Jeffersons I forget exactly Which Boston affiliate It sometimes was on But I know that Indelible theme song And remember watching it sometimes (laughs) I went back and watched a bunch of episodes and and shared some with my kids over the weekend. And I really haven't seen very much of it. Like, I'm familiar with the characters. I know some of the catchphrases. I'm, you know, aware of the imprint. um, But I hadn't actually spent much time in the company of these shows. And it was so interesting to go back and encounter them. And what struck me most was the underlying assumption in all of them that a television show was a kind of cross-cultural convening opportunity. And obviously, deciding that that was the case and taking advantage of that to look at the world rather than to coddle people and look away from it was part of Lear's brilliance. But it's very striking, that sense of the kind of national hearth that they give, which feels unfamiliar.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great point, In I mean, these shows, let's be totally clear, not only were they hit shows, right, and in their way, cutting edge, they aggregated an immense plurality of Americans.
4: I mean, I think reading all these obits and, and, and kind of looking at overviews of Lear's career made me realize that I grew up in a world of Norman Lear TV to a Extent I didn't even realize, you know, because I think I also was a little bit too young to. I was certainly too young when All in the Family first aired to actually understand what it was talking about, right? I mean, it was it was there, it was on, but I was a little kid hiding under the couch while it was while it was on, but. What I started to realize on seeing how wide the web extended of, you know, the spin-offs and spin-offs of spin-offs and different kind of conceptual worlds that he had created on television was that the world of, you know, just regular TV watching, like turn on your four channel network TV in the late seventies, early eighties, and watch what happens to be on in syndication was all Norman Lear. And uh, and and so much of it had this really progressive and, um, and inventive bent that at the time just sort of seemed to me like, well, that's what TV is. Uh, I was thinking in particular of Good Times, his, his sitcom about a, a black family in a Chicago housing project, which... I wouldn't say it was one of my favorite shows or like a show that was particularly special to me growing up, but I watched it almost every day because it was in the after-school syndicated lineup in which every other show was about, you know, the white middle class, right? So I would watch Happy Days, Gilligan's Island, something else entirely about white people, and then Good Times would be on.
3: From Television City in Hollywood...
4: And in reading about good times in some of our material, I saw that, you know, it was somewhat controversial, including with the stars, Esther Rolle and John Amos, who played the, the mother and father of this family in in the, in the projects, who at some point, I think, complained that the show was getting too broad and that the humor was too sort of, you know, um, racially cartoonish that... That the young actor Jimmy Walker, who played their son, was sort of becoming the show's star because of his funny catchphrases, and that it was losing, basically, its its, its social commentary that it was trying to make in favor of, you know, just being funny. <laughs>
1: oh <my! laughs>
4: that all may be the case, and those may be very legitimate complaints, but all I can say is that as a white suburban kid who lived in much more of a happy days world, that show was one of my few exposures to, you know, an entirely black family on television. So, when I think about the, I don't know, dozen or so shows that he had going on and the millions and millions of people, as you say, Steve, in that day of event television who were watching them, you know, there were a lot, there were a lot of people getting exposed to worlds they knew nothing about through Norman Lear.
2: Right. And of course, looking back at it from the viewpoint of 2023, like, what a shame that a white male TV auteur had to be the medium through which, you know, you know, segments of white America became acquainted with black reality. I mean, and I say black reality in air quotes. Nonetheless, as a transitional figure from a totally lily white uh, primetime lineup to the world we now enjoy where there's finally, belatedly, a diversity of creators, um, you need someone like Norman Lear. And I think he deserves credit for that. He was also responsive to the complaint that Good Times, uh, by the Black Panthers, by the way, that Good Times was reductive in that it showed, depicted yet again, uh, black people in America as simply poor and struggling with poverty in the ghetto and the pathologies therein. And um, he created the Jeffersons about a super upwardly mobile uh, black couple, entrepreneur, husband, uh, who moves to Manhattan became an iconic TV show uh, and a huge hit. Um, To me, a couple of things bear saying uh, in remembrance of Norman Lear. First was the real serious out-and-out courage of Maude, his show about a middle-aged feminist woman uh, uh, having an episode about abortion that... CBS desperately wanted them to cancel. Uh, There was a huge campaign of advertisers uh, and letter writers against it. He went ahead. I believe it was aired without advertisement, uh, and then it received huge amounts of hate mail.
5: You're just scared. I am not scared. You are, and it's as simple as going to the dentist. Now I'm scared.
2: And B. Arthur said it, you know, it sort of turned Maude into the Joan of Arc of middle aged women in America uh, in a way. And then the second thing I would say is that for all of the uh, topicality of his shows, all in the family especially, and bear in mind when this is happening too, right? These shows are in the er, all in the family, especially early 1970s Kent State, Watergate, the fall of Saigon, OPEC, uh, and then inflation and stagflation. I mean, during a period in America where public life seems to be collapsing in ways that are horrifying almost on a daily basis to average Americans. Norman Lear was there to, in a way, both challenge and hold people's hands that I think is improbably deft of him. Um, But the second thing was there was a real prescience to all in the family that I don't think we should miss. Sociologists in the late 60s started noticing a very distinct shift from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party in the direction of a backlash conservatism by angry white men, which, if you think about it in the 50 intervening years, has been a defining political fact of this country, for which Archie Bunker was this really curious harbinger. And what Lear tried to do in that show was so delicate, is he he showed him as a pontificating know-nothing bigot. He also said this is still a human being, and what he's suffering from is a, is a loss, and I would never want to suggest that Lear owed it to anybody to give a humane or rounded portrait of a man filled with that kind of hate. But it was a far more interesting and challenging and ambiguous show to have this human being shown as something more than a caricature while really trying to understand what kind of germ of toxicity was implanted in American culture. And that, to me, makes it, I think, one of the four or five Greatest TV shows of all time.
1: It's really interesting to go back and watch it. And actually just listening to the clip at the beginning of this segment, I was struck by how Trumpian he sounds. Even some of the intonations. It's like, oh Tr- Trump must have watched this show going growing up and been like, Great, I'll be <laughs> like that. <Right>. <laughs> like,
2: Which many people did, by the way.
1: Yeah.
4: As it yeah. was received by a lot of conservatives for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a real echo there. And I would recommend maybe pre-screening the episodes you might want to show your 10-year-olds. There was certainly some language that I would not have chosen to show them unpreviewed. Um, just because since this was a show made by a white person and sympathetic in some on some level to, you know, how it is that Archie Bunker came to be Archie Bunker in this fictional world, uh, there's a... Willingness to portray and kind of get laughs out of his bigotry that doesn't land squarely today, um, even though the the intent of it is clear and and Lear's own liberal bona fides are clear and his responsiveness to criticism um, is admirable and just the depth and breadth of his work is admirable. And can you just I, I, has any modern cultural thing aged worse than Schmishmorsion like? They put fucking abortion on television in the 1970s, and then in the early 21st century with Judd Apatow's Knocked Up, we're getting shmushmortion, like we can't even say the word.
0: You know what I think you should do? Take care of it. Tell me you don't want him to get an A word. Yes, I do, and I won't say it for little baby ears over there, but it rhymes with shmushmortion.
4: Yeah, Julia, that's so true. Uh, thinking about this, the, the, that episode of Maud and, and reading about it made me think of a, an interview that I gave last year to a, a documentarian who's making a documentary about the representation of abortion on screen, on TV, and in movies, which is a great topic for a documentary. And so I gave them a little interview about it and was was kind of researching that that Maude episode and some other big moments of, of abortion representation in movies and TV. And it is just remarkable, the, the degree to which we've gone back. Not surprising, because the law itself obviously has gone mm-hmm. way, way, way backwards pre-1973. But, yeah, exactly. The ground that Maude broke with B. Arthur in, when would that have been? The late 1970s? Uh, mm, yeah. It's now thoroughly unbroken, <laughs> right? And right. has been completely sodded over again to the point that, you know, we're saying shmushmorshan at the movies, and every character in a TV show who gets pregnant and almost has an abortion, has some kind of convenient miscarriage or changes their mind. Juno, you know, like again and again and again in pop culture, we get this double messaging about abortion, like, oh, we're so progressive. But of course, our lovable mm-hmm. heroine would never actually do this.
2: All right. Well, rest in peace, Norman Lee, are a great American. Uh, and if you haven't, you know, I would just look for lists of like best episodes of All in the Family in particular and watch one or two, see what you think. All right, moving on. All right, well, we're joined by uh, Slate's wonderful book critic, culture writer, Laura Miller. Laura, welcome back to the show.
3: It's great to be talking to you guys again.
2: Yeah, it's wonderful to have you back. You produced a very cool uh, top 10 books of the year list we want to discuss setting it up. You said, this year I wanted to read books that did what only books can provide me with a portrayal of the world as rich and complex as the world itself. Here, here, and then you go on to quote Zadie Smith, who was on your list this year. A person is a bottomless thing. I love that. How about if we start this way? Talk a little bit about what's on the list and then if you would maybe extrapolate from that to if it's possible this highly dubious abstraction, but let's try it. The year in books, what pattern was there? (laughs) What sort of feels did you get from um, the book world this year from what you read this year?
3: Well, there's the great, Books that I loved this year. And then there's the things going on in the book world, which are often not very happy. I mean, I think the biggest story of the year were all the attempted book bans in various um, red counties around America and the many heroic attempts by librarians and school children and parents to counteract that. Um, So that's the news of the year in books. But as always, there are tons and tons of really great books published every year. And that's what this list focused on.
2: All right. From the somewhat depressing meta story of the year in books, let's go to the highly scintillating specifics of your list. Pick a couple of titles and let's, let's start talking.
3: Well, one of the things I loved about The Guest uh, by Emma Klein, which is sort of the book of the summer, is that it depicts a particular kind of person who is both incredibly canny and incredibly self destructive at the same time. Mm. Um, it's a story of this young woman who's sort of a failed model who is uh, invited to her, to some older rich boyfriend's beach house in the Hamptons, and she can't really go back to New York because her roommates have kicked her out for stealing stuff from them and not paying the rent, and she also stole some money from this kind of sinister friend who's trying to get in touch with her. And then her boyfriend breaks up with her after she does something embarrassing at a party, and she decides that she's going to get him back over the course of five days, um, you know, leading up to his big Labor Day party. And she manages to sort of travel all over the Hamptons, persuading various rich people that she belongs and getting a place to sleep for the night, getting a meal. It's like a kind of a high wire act that involves all of this cleverness and canningness. And at the same time, her ultimate goal, which is to get this boyfriend who doesn't care about her at all, to take her back is completely doomed. Um, and I feel like I have known uh, women like this in my life. And, and it is this is really the most persuasive portrait of how they think. Um, again, it's like, how do you make sense of a person like that? There isn't a simple explanation, as Zadie Smith would undoubtedly very much appreciate. <laughs> um, and that's that's what I found with most of these books, that there was a complexity in human nature that that eludes like simple formulas of who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, who's likable, who's not. And, um, and those were the books I was drawn to both in fiction and nonfiction.
4: Laura, I have not read a single book on your list. No, wait, that's not quite true. I've read a great deal of Doppelganger by Naomi Klein because we interviewed her on the show, but I would not say that I've read the whole book, only all the the excerpts that I could get a hold of. Uh, But there's another contemporary novel on your list that I happen to have heard a lot about this year because I was on a long driving trip with a a very good friend, and I just asked him that question you ask, what are you reading? Reading anything good? And he was reading one of the books on your list, Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton, and we proceeded to have this long, you know, he... He kind of outlined the story. I mean, we had hours of driving ahead, so he told me all about the book, what he liked, what he didn't like, and we dug way into it. So I feel like this is my second time hearing a lot about Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton. I now really want to read it, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about that book.
3: Yeah, so this is um, kind of the most all-around satisfying novel novel that I read this year. Um, and it's basically the story of a guerrilla gardening group. And, and what they do is they find unused pieces of land that belong to somebody who's just sort of forgotten about them. And they plant and harvest organic produce, which they then give away in their community. So they're this sort of um, kind of socialist, consensus-operated... You know, it's that kind of group. They've, there are lots of them in the world. And they find a, a big piece of real estate sort of in the countryside of New Zealand where this novel is set, um, where Cat, Eleanor Catton, the author, is from. And the, there's this housing development that was going to be built, but then it got... Waylaid, and so nothing is happening with this piece of land, and so they decide to actually go there and do a much more serious um, operation. But in the process, the the woman, the young woman who leads this group, meets this American tech billionaire who is um, building like one of these, you know, super deluxe bunkers that American tech billionaires are always trying to set up in New Zealand because they think there's going to be an apocalypse and um, and he, he gets involved with them in various complex ways and it's it's great because it's a it's sort of a social satire of people from all different walks of life um, and there's a secret and there's adventure and there's uh, skullduggery and betrayal and Romantic Triangles and all of this stuff. Um, It's just uh, really fun to read and very, you know, managed to engage with contemporary issues without being completely overwrought, you know, and and swamped by them. You know, it's not a book by one of those people who's like, I can't, the world is going to hell. Oh, my God, I can't do anything. You know, she really kind of has a, a, a firm grasp on all of these issues.
1: I'm curious, Laura, about some of the nonfiction on your list. I've shared many times with our listeners on this show that I, I, my life as a working person means I want to be drugged by plot at bedtime, and so I don't read as much nonfiction as I would like, and there are so many juicy and enticing-sounding titles on your list. I had heard with that sort of fervent—I just read this, and you've got to read this from a few people about— the best minds the the story of a a 70s friendship between bright boys, um, and how one of them grows up and struggles with mental illness and schizophrenia and more. Um, So I'm still eager to read that. But I was also curious about a Nancy's Gold, which I had not heard as much about. Can you share a bit more about that one?
3: Yeah, the reason you haven't heard about it is because it was really just published like last month. And it's the story of um well it's about it's it it's basically this guy who is at the center of this story is this incredible con man who I guess you know you could say that he sort of div- invented an early version of one of those Nigerian 419 scams. Um where he basically, you know, claimed that he had access to th- all of this money that had been hidden away by uh, the late president of Ghana, you know, hidden away so that corrupt Ghana officials and the West couldn't get at it, and he could get that cash, but he just needed some money up front in order to retrieve it, and this guy just uh, managed to get money from people in America, in particular, a lot of this. Uh, Centers around um, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh, and um, and in Ghana, and really all over the world, including um, a former U.S. Attorney General, John Mitchell, in fact. Um, and he, he, you know, it's one of those those stories that that you know people love a con man story. You know, like how clever and how audacious he is, and his big cars, and his cigars, and his tailored suits, and his incredible ability to slip out of the clutches of people just as they're realizing what he's really up to but it's also a really great um, depiction of sort of the dilemmas of post-colonial countries particularly in Africa Um, and it's so it's fun but it's also there's also some meat to it as well and um, I've always found Ghana to be really fascinating so I was particularly interested in the fact that it was set there.
2: All right, let's pivot a little bit. Dana, you have a top 10 film list. I'm always, I love, I mean, there are so many best Danas, but maybe the bestest, best Dana is like peevish Dana, grumpy Dana. And I like that you produce a beautiful (laughs) top 10 list every year. And yet, you peeve about it in the smartest, most interesting ways. So Dana, go. Go. Talk to me about <laughs> making true. your top 10. I think ten. this may be
4: the first top 10 list I've written in three or four years that doesn't basically begin with some sort of disclaimer about how much I dislike making lists and the culture of lists will send us all to hell. At the same time, I absolutely love reading other people's <laughs> lists, including Laura's list of the best books. I completely Which is why we keep culture. assigning them. I know. And that's, and that's why I'm going to stop being so grumpy about it. Because the fact is that once I start writing about the movies and I think about it as just an opportunity to talk about movies that I loved... It's it's great. It's it has more to do with you know a certain kind of like broy competitiveness or or kind of like one zero sum logic that starts to accumulate around lists. But if you can sort of shake that off and just just write them, I I, I can come around to seeing why they're great. And given that I don't keep up with contemporary fiction or nonfiction at near the level that a book critic does, It it is just great to get an overview of a year that, you know, to me, things would have had to filter through a lot of word of mouth, right, or a lot of, you know, popular acclaim in order for me to hear about them. So to me, part of what a list does is that you get to bring forward things that people might not otherwise get to see. I, I have a question about list making in general for Laura, which is that when I'm trying to compile one of these year end lists, I would be lying if I said that it wasn't... A lot of the choices weren't based on wanting my piece of writing to be successful. You know, I don't want to talk about too many movies... That I feel like I've already said what I have to say about or that resemble each other so that I'm saying the same kind of thing. You know, like a part of it is, is honestly displaying your own <laughs> virtuosity as a writer or your own variance and taste as a critic. And uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, lists are a, a piece of writing that you're trying to make as effective as you can. So that's the reason, for example, I might say, hey, I haven't talked about anything funny. You know, I'm going to pick a movie that's a comedy so that I get to not have a gloomy tone for every single blur on my list and I'm wondering if Laura goes into the the project with some similar vain thoughts about her own writing
3: hmm, that is an interesting question because I think I think of it much more in a servicey way I mean not uh, in journalism when people say service journalism it's usually like a, considered to be a lower level, of writing than what a critic does, but I think partly because it takes so long to read a book, and because book reviewing is not like as visible as movie and TV reviewing, um, that that you know people may see one or two opinions on a book, or they may see a lot if it's a big book like the Zadie Smith book or something. But um, it's just really hard to sort of for people to really gather enough input to to make that decision. And it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge investment of their time. You know, you can watch a movie in two hours, but it takes usually 10 to 15 hours to read a book. So people are much more cautious about what they read a lot of the time. And so I'm mostly just focused on um, trying to be really honest because there is this tendency to um, to include things sort of automatically or to exclude things because they've been written up a lot like sometimes a book is on a lot of best of lists because it's really, really good. And so I'm constantly, I think what I'm constantly doing is, is saying to myself, what will the person who's reading this do with this information? And then how will they feel about me if they if they read this book? Because I don't want anybody to go, I can't believe she told me to read that. People get really mad about um, feeling misled about the qualities of books. So um, so it, I, And I do lean towards things that have a really strong narrative. So I was really happy to hear that, um, Julia's appetite, reading appetite, was wedded because I, I want to make them sound like books that are hard to put down, even if they are a narrative of a childhood friendship, or um, you know, or a doomed love affair, or like a crazy um, uh, identity issue on the internet. You know, I want them. I I want people to feel like they were entertained as well as informed and and impressed and enlightened by these books.
2: Oh, excellent. All right. Laura Miller is the book critic for Slate. Uh, Laura, it's just, it's a delight to have you back on the show. I wish it were easier for us to cover books. We'd have you on all the time, but let's let's find an excuse (laughs) soon.
3: Okay. I'm always up for it.
2: Excellent. All right. Be well. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dane. Now, what uh, what do you have?
4: Steve, I think I'll tag on to our Norman Lear segment, something that I wanted to get into, but we, there was just too much else to say about his, his massive career and influence, which is that Norman Lear was really working in the heyday of TV theme songs and introductory, whatever you call them, credit sequences, title sequences, And I was saying in our segment that I was maybe born a little bit too late to experience shows like All in the Family in real time as anything else than something my parents were watching while I, you know, played underneath a chair. But I do remember indelibly and can probably still sing most of the lyrics to the All in the Family theme song. Also the instrumental Sanford and Son theme song, a show we didn't talk about, but another Norman Lear show about black life had an incredible, just a a really funky, jazzy, wonderful theme song that I could call to mind at any moment. And I didn't realize this until researching it, but the Sanford and Son theme, which has a title, it's called The Street Beater, is actually composed by Quincy Jones, who I think was a a friend of Norman Lear's and worked with him a lot. So I think that my endorsement is go on YouTube and just call yourself up some Norman Lear introductory sequences and uh, and you will hear some really really great songs i mean if if tv shows had themes like that in our day now they would all be hitting the pop charts they're just such incredibly
1: catchy tunes
2: that's great julia what about you
1: okay my endorsement this week is going to double as a one item gift guide for our listeners there must be people on your list for whom you want to give uh an overpriced delicious delicious smelling body wash Just kind of an, like, who doesn't need soap? Everybody needs soap, you know? It's like a a baby luxury, right? So uh, the company is Corpus. The flavor is Number Green. Please forgive them for naming the flavor Number Green. Obviously, green is not a number. Um, But the scent is bergamot, pink lemon, orange blossom, and cardamom, which, like, are all the good scents. Um, And it's a great gift. Corpus, Number Green delicious. Snap it up if you've got some last minute gifties who would like this item.
4: Wow, Julia, knowing that you're somebody who reacts really negatively to to cloying commercial scents, <laughs> I take anything for a scented product, any recommendation of yours very seriously.
1: Uh this is truly worth checking out.
2: Uh brilliant. All right. Well, so this week I'm, I'm going to go a little esoteric, but my daughter just sent me a quote. Should philosophy, amongst its other conceits, imagine that someone might actually want to follow its precepts in practice, a curious comedy would emerge. Guesses who said this? Wrote it? Mm. Who's one of the great non-philosopher philosophers? Larry David. Close. Who's the other great non-philosopher philosopher of all time? Soren? Soren? Anybody? Anybody? Soren?
4: Kierkegaard? He's, he, but he is a philosopher. <laughs> I was thinking about the world I, of people who are not called philosophers.
2: I said one of the great non-philosophers philosopher of all time, and that is absolutely what Kierkegaard is. na You're
1: splitting philosophical uh, hair, Steve.
2: Anyway, uh, it comes from Fear and Trembling, one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, and the funny thing is that Kierkegaard, I mean, it was Kierkegaard a Christian philosopher? I mean, sort of yes and sort of no. He was trying to carve out what actual faith would look like in spite of a very oppressive um, Danish church, uh, establishment church, but he's so much more. I mean, he's the sort of the, I mean, he really is the originator of what we think of as existentialism, for better and for worse, but he is the first, I think, real existentialist. But even more than that, what he's tr- really trying to do, and especially in that book, which is very easy, it's short, it's aphoristic it's incredibly beautiful book. It's truly one of the greatest books ever written and people should read it is he's trying to understand anxiety and he is the great philosopher of like varieties of dread or anxiety or sort of discomfort our relationship to the horizon of the future and therefore ourselves in the present uh, and it's so poetic. it's a really beautiful book. It was my favorite probably my favorite book from my college days, and I'm so happy that independently of me, I never talked with her about Kierkegaard. My older daughter at college has discovered it. So it's Kierkegaard, the book Fear and Trembling. Check it out. Julia, thank you so much.
4: Thanks,
1: Steve.
2: Thanks, Dana.
4: Thank you, Steven.
2: You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page That's Slate.com slash CultureFest. You can email us at CultureFest at Slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, Sam Adams, and Laura Miller, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.